Good morning, Wednesday Breakfast listeners. This is 7th of December, 2022. Before we begin our broadcast this morning, we would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resistance of First Nations people in the ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Claudia. I'll be hosting the show this morning. I'm solo again today. Uh, We'll be joined by Eidwin next week. Uh, But this morning, uh, I'll be sharing all the segments with you. It's a beautiful morning this morning. I hope if you're up and out, you've been able to enjoy the lovely clear sky and beautiful temperature. There's lots of people out this morning walking their dogs and smiling outside their windows, driving along Yeah, it's really nice to have these fresh mornings to start our day. So I'm going to run through our show with you. Uh, It's a bit of a mix this morning. We've got lots of lived experiences uh, to share with you. And first up, we're going to be hearing from Linda Fisk. She is the co-founder of Seeds of Affinity, a South Australian organisation supporting women leaving prison as they re-enter society. Linda herself has lived experience as uh, a person who has been in detention. So she can offer a lot of insight and obviously um, a great support to the people she's working with at Seeds of Affinity. Then at 7.30pm, AM, I should say, we'll be sharing one of the great conversations from 3CR's special Disability Day broadcast last Saturday Listeners may have uh, been tuning in. We did an all-day broadcast uh, because it was International Disability Day. And the segment we'll be sharing with you is from 3CR's Raising the Roof team. Chris, Evan, Shona and James describe their experience of living with disability and they're particularly talking about experiences of bullying and discrimination. And that'll take us through till uh, eight o'clock. And just after eight, we'll be speaking on another matter. We'll be speaking with Stacey Pigeon, and she is the National Manager of Research and Policy at the Royal Life Saving Society Australia. And she's going to share the latest report on drowning risk in Australia and what we can do to prepare for water activity this summer. We're going to have some nice music and little bits of chats. So we'll get started now and we've got Charcoal Club with I Give to You. 
Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country. Join us at ACME on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019. Tickets and passes on sale now. 
at effa.org.au. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter. is shining, or at least it's attempting to, so get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamshade Wines. Just $20 per bottle, or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. I'm Claudia, and before the break, we heard I Give to You, Charcoal Club. We're now going to hear from Linda Fisk, co-founder of a grassroots not-for-profit organisation, Seeds of Affinity, Pathways for Women. The group supports criminalised women in South Australia through social and skills-based activities that create a sense of belonging and safety. Incarceration has been very much on the agenda here at 3CR this year. Uh, We've done a lot of stories and uh, heard from Homes Not Prisons. Uh, Yeah, it's something that is very important to us and we... Yeah, want to get the messages and support out there as much as we can. So I spoke to Linda a while back and this is her story. Now, Linda, can we start with you and your story? You founded Seeds of Affinity back in 2006. Would you like to share a little bit about how the organisation began and what the drivers were setting it up? Uh, sure, Claudia, I can do that. Um, I could do that with my eyes closed, I think. <laughs> so um, I'm an uh, ex-prisoner and myself and my um, old parole officer uh, are co-founders of the organisation. Back in 2006, um, what we were seeing was many women cycling in and out of the prison system and not really remaining in the community for very long. Uh, most of the support organisations and the state-run support organisations had really been set up for men and they really didn't fit us. Um, and it troubled troubled me and it troubled Anna, who was my old parole officer, and we would quite often spend hours and hours talking on the phone on how we could help and what we could do to change things for women in the criminal justice system in South Australia. Um, Anna, was, Anna has worked for the Department of Correctional Services, I think now for 43 or 42 years. Um, at that time, she was really struggling with continuing to work for corrections because she felt she couldn't really impact uh, women's lives at all. Um, so she went away and she learned how to, she took four weeks off work and was going to decide whether she was going to continue with corrections or not. And she went away and learned how to make soaps and toiletries and moisturisers and all that sort of thing. Anyway, when she came back, 
she rang me up and she said, we're going to have a, a lunch and you're going to cook and we're going to have some of my women clients and we're going to see where it goes. So that's really how it started. Um, and what we saw was that the women really, really enjoyed it and um, got a lot out of it as far as um, I have a lot of knowledge even back then about systems and especially the criminal justice system. Um, I spent most of the 80s and the 90s in that system, so I knew how to navigate that very well and I knew how to navigate my way out of it because um, I had many goes at it, let's put it that way. Um so we began in a very small way in doing that and we saw that women really benefited and the women really wanted to make something out of it. So then we um, set together creating a non-for-profit organisation, um, which is a lot of work, I learned. And we were incorporated in 2011 and um, it's now 2022 and we're still going. Don't get a lot of funding. We Basically, from 2006, we really um, survived on selling soap, much like the suffragettes did um, over 150 years ago. Um, so we meet on a Tuesday and a Friday and, the, and we have a shared lunch um, and that's when the women will um, learn to make the soaps and the moisturisers and things. And we share our knowledge, uh, we share our experience and we what we've ultimately done, I think, in the way I look at it, is that we've created a community. So... A lot of the women that have been in prison for a significant period of time, whether it's one shot in prison or whether it's many stints in prison over that, that period, usually have burnt their family connections, they've burnt their community connections, and they, they don't feel that they belong anywhere out here anymore. And sometimes what I see with seeds is, you know, a woman might come for, you know, six months, 12 months, maybe 18 months, and then she gains her confidence back and her self-belief and then things will spread out into more the mainstream community. And then we have other cohorts of women that have been with us since 2006. One was here this morning. And, you know, they'll probably always be with us, uh, women with complex needs that really don't fit in mainstream community centres or mainstream support systems. So, I mean, that, that's a real shortcut, I think. Um, it's a much more complex story than that, but that's it, that, that's it in a nutshell. And Seeds was really born out of, necessity and a feeling that we were invisible and that we had no sort of platform for us to regain regain our footing and regain our dignity in a way mm. as well I think you know and um, when you come out of prison you're very 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 meek and mild and you people in the community don't think that about us they have different ideas about us but we're actually very very um, insecure in ourselves and we don't have a lot of self-belief you've been treated as a subhuman for however long you've been in prison and once you come out into the community you feel that everybody knows that you've been in prison so to have a group of women surrounding you that support you regardless of your prison experience what what you your offense to women at seeds is irrelevant um and i think that that in itself get, gives women great a great sense of self-esteem and a great sense of belonging and i think that's the, the magic and the key in seeds of affinity it sounds like a really safe, safe place. Well, we try to make it a very safe place, yeah. Yeah, place, <laughs> place of trust and care. Yeah, um, and a place where the, women, where the women direct things. So the women have spent their lives being directed, mm. you know, by one officer or one system or, or one um, 
you know, government department or another. They've been told their whole lives what they should be doing. Uh, we try to do the opposite and we try to follow their lead. And like the app that we're going to talk about later, that app has been, been developed with from consultation with the women. It's what the women want. It's not what wider community thinks should happen. It's not what government should think should happen. It's the women that are advising the creators of the app on what should happen. And that's, you know, that's that's um, pretty empowering for women. Absolutely. Well, we'll come to um, hear more about that process that you've described um, in a bit more detail. But um, first, I just wanted to go back to something you said at the outset, which was the, the systems in place for people leaving prison, entering society and community again, were designed with men in mind and therefore women were being left behind. Can you share what that system looks like, why it's designed for men, what are the needs of women or the obstacles that they're facing that weren't catered for in the system, Um, just so we can understand where that gap was or is? So if we think about prison in the first place, it was created by, by men for men, women are really an afterthought, and and we 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 feel that immediately when we go to prison. So usually, when you go to prison and you're a woman, most things are too big for you. Um, the shoes don't fit you because they're being made for men. The clothes don't fit you. Um, the the prisons themselves don't fit us. So if you go into the Adelaide Women's Prison today, and there's been a lot of money spent on. Um, the prison being expanded, there's fitness gear that's been put into that prison that is too big for the women. So the women don't fit into it. So everything has been designed with men in mind and we're an afterthought. Um, so even the thing is like bras. So a prison, a women's prison needs bras, right? So it's taken many, many years for the women's prison to have bras that actually fit women. So it's taken them a long time to get their head around that. In the in the 90s and in the early 2000s when women were getting out of prison, so as I said before, before we went on air, I said to you there's many different levels of people getting out of prison. So in South Australia, if you um, need bail, for instance, so if you, if you get charged in the fence, you're remanded in custody, you go to prison, and then you might go back to court and you might apply, apply for bail. If you're a man, you can apply for bail and go to the bail hostel, which is in the Arches in Port Adelaide. Well, the women have, can't, can't use that facility. It's for men only. So women at the moment have no option for bail in South Australia unless they have a family member that they can go to. So the, the share houses in South Australia as well, usually run by alls, they're all men's houses. They're not women's houses. So that's, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that women felt that things just didn't fit them. And when, when you go to some of the services, and I'm not going to mention organisations' names, but they just don't take into account that women are different. Women's experience in the criminal justice system is different. We, we function differently. So when we serve prison time, we do that time completely different to the way that men do time. And that is really the essence, I believe, as to why we're treated so very differently. So men tend to, men, men, are, men are low need prisoners, but they're high risk. Women are high need, but we're low risk. So there's, there's a lot of differences. So a woman in prison, if she wants something, she's, she needs an envelope for her letter that she's going to send to her child 
she's going to nag for that envelope and she's going to keep asking that officer for that envelope like a dripping tap she's going to keep asking where a man needs something men don't get it the men will externalize that they will they will actually do something about it if they don't get what they need from the system where the women are differently and the women have been treated differently in this state i believe for since the beginning of time prisons in this state so is what you're saying that a more aggressive approach um, in terms of demanding things that you need is actually rewarded by a response? Well, just not so much aggressive. You're just not putting up with shit, mm. if I can put it like that. So the women tend to be more submissive so, um, um, and are treated that way in prison. So if you think about the women that we have in prison, who's in prison? Women that have been victims of sexual sexual violence, women that have been victims of domestic violence, women that have been suffered trauma all their life. You can look at the prison cohort, and I would say ninety seven percent of those women in that prison would have suffered some trauma or other. Some of those women have suffered nothing but trauma continually mm. all of their lives. So they're not going to stand up to mm. men and men and women, but there's more men there now in uniform telling them they need to do this and they need to do that. It's, it's a very, very difficult position for those women to be in. It's, it's quite, it's really re-traumatising them. And to expect them to act like men in a prison system is just, it's, it's nonsense. It's not going to happen. So you come out and you've got less of a voice than when you went in. Absolutely. And, and what, what is confronting you then? Um, so when you're coming out, um, you've got massive things that you need to do. Um, you need to get a roof over your head. Most women are caregivers. So most women are the the caregivers of a family and of children. So a lot of those women are single parents. So when they go to prison, a lot of those children go into care. So most women, the first thing when they get out, what's the thing that they want to do? Even before they put a roof over their head, they want their children back. Absolutely. That, that's not an easy task. And to get your children back, it's sort you of need like the roof. you need the roof over your head mm. and you need a job and you need this and you need that. So you've, got, you've also got usually parole conditions. You've got Centrelink to deal with on, on, on your way out. Some women come out without knowing how to use a computer or a mobile phone. So you walk into Centrelink and you'll be told to go and get on the computer and apply for your benefit, but you don't know how to use it. So there's constantly barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier with nobody willing to sit down with you and understand your experience and to understand that you do have things to offer but you need support and you need access to resources. You can't do anything without access to resources. And most women find it so daunting that sometimes, and especially women that have had addiction issues, um, they will resort to old things so if you if you don't can't find something new you have no choice but to revert to what you used to do and who you used to be although you're being told by the system you need to get out you need to start a new life and you need to find new friends that's not easy that's you know they say it like it's just you know i'll turn left down this street and that that's all going to happen for you that's that's not easy and that's about creating a whole identity for yourself and then if you're dealing with 
Department of Child Protection trying to get your children back as well. That, that's another daunting pro process that women need support for and they need support that's non-judgmental. They need people that are willing to walk alongside them without judging them for who they are, where they've been. And is any of this preparation happening before departure? Is there any of this that's dealt with in order to make the process less traumatic or less difficult to navigate once the few, person's on their own? In very few cases, very few cases. You know, the department tends to cherry-pick certain certain women that they might make their um, trophies or, you know, that they might think that they might do extra things for. But as a rule, no, those things are not dealt with. The, the department does not see their role as, as that. Mm. Department, the department is about containment. It's not about what happens afterward. That's, pers that's personal responsibility as far as the department's concerned. It, it's very difficult. Most parole officers have like 70, 80 cases on their caseload. How do, you, how do you give 70, 80 people practical support on a weekly basis? So it's really up to the individual to find that support. So we'll come to the, the crux of um, the interview, which is a new piece of technology that you've developed in order to assist women leaving prison with one particular issue they face which really cuts through all of this because you need identification to front up to Centrelink, to open a bank account, to identify yourself going into the world. And that is a piece of documentation that a lot of women don't have coming out of prison. Um, can you tell us why they don't have that documentation and what that then means for the reality of what they face. So, if you're if you're if I was arrested today and I'm arrested on the street, uh, my identification in most cases, my birth certificate, and all those sorts of things are going to be in my home. So, I'm going to be arrested, take to court, and then I'm going to be sent to prison. So, my belongings are going to be in my home. So, if I don't get out quickly enough, my landlord or whoever owns the house is going to come along and re-rent that house to somebody else so all those belongings are going to be removed and taken away to the dump or whatever so I'm going to lose what identification that I do have unless I'm lucky enough to be someone that has a license and I have that license in my wallet that goes to prison with me most of our women don't have licenses so that that's for us is you know it's a very small percentage of people um so upon release, it's really a matter of going and getting everything again. And you need to start with a birth certificate. To have a birth certificate, get a birth certificate, you need the money to get the birth certificate. But to get the money, you need to be able to get your Centrelink. But to get your Centrelink, you have to have a birth certificate. It's a bit, it's a bit really like a comedy skit. You know, you could do a comedy skit about it, like, go to Centrelink and they say, oh, go and get your birth certificate. And you go to birth, death and marriage and they say, oh, we'll have to go to Centrelink and get your money so you can pay for it. So you're on this merry-go-round, um, this very cruel merry-go-round that doesn't really give you any assistance. And um, we'd like to find a way to assist women in being able to cut through all that nonsense because it's thing little things like that that seems little to us, but believe you me, to a woman that's just got out of prison that can't get paid, because she hasn't got identification or she can't get a bank account, 
Um, it's a massive thing. And a lot of women just throw their hands up in the air and go and steal themselves something to eat instead and end up back in prison. So it's a really, really important issue. And that was Linda Fisk from Seeds of Affinity talking about the merry-go-round of establishing ID paperwork and the experience of transition from prison to society. To learn more about Seeds of Affinity or to shop from their online store, you can head to seedsofaffinity.org. And while we're on the subject of shopping from not-for-profits, 3CR's also got some Christmas shopping ideas if you want to head on to their website. Uh, as you know, we've got a, a fundraiser with uh, a wine that you can purchase by the bottle or in a mix, half a dozen uh, set. And we've also got some really cute calendars for sale. We've had Fung in the studio this morning from Tuesday Breakfast and she's been opening up the calendar. She just bought a whole lot in a uh, lovely packaged box and we all said, let's have a look because we'd only seen the cover. And, uh, yeah, there's some very cute pets. Um, so you might find one of your favourite 3CR broadcasters with their pet uh, on the calendar and uh, that's a, a pretty good excuse to, to buy one and dip in. Um, so, yeah, that's just one of the things on sale at the 3CR shop as well. But, um, yeah, it's always good to, to have a look around the not-for-profits websites because there's some great great produce there for Chrissy presents um, and all year round. We're going to have a little break now and then we'll head on to our Disability Day segment. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. And you're back listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. 
I hope your morning's going well and uh, you're enjoying that lovely day out there. We go to head into our Disability Day segment. As listeners are aware, last Saturday was International Disability Day and 3CR celebrated the event with a day of live broadcast sharing stories and experiences of and by people living with disability. We're going to take a listen to a segment from Raising Our Voices where self-advocates Chris, Heather, Shona and James speak up about their experiences as people with intellectual disability and they'll be talking about their experiences of bullying and discrimination. And just a warning that the content discussed could be heavy for some listeners as there will be discussions of sensitive issues such as trauma and mental health. So if you feel this could be a bit much for you right now, you might want to tune out for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Hi, my name's Chris, and welcome to another Raising of Voices on FreeCR 8.55am. We are a self-advocacy group, so what is run by people with disabilities for people with disabilities Nothing about us without us. In today's show, Heather, Sona and James will be sharing with us about bullying. I hand it over to Heather. Thank you, Chris. My name is Heather and I'm a South African and... I'm a part of Green for Self-Advocacy and also Positive Power for Parents. I'll hand over to Shona. Hi, my name is Shona. I am a self-advocate and I am part of Have a Say Bendigo. I'll pass it over to James. Hi, my name is James. I am part of a self-advocacy group called Reinforce. Heather, Shona and James will be talking to us about their experience with intellectual people with in, with disabilities on bullying and discrimination, so how it affects us and how they are coping now. Shona, what experience have you had with being discriminated and being bullied? I was bullied at school when I was a child. Name called and teased. I was bullied at school when I was a child and um, <laughs> one just special two of the special schools I was at and uh, I was getting in trouble by teachers for nothing and at one of the primary schools I went to um I was getting in trouble for standing near my sisters and they my sisters wanted me to and I and it affected me really badly I was treated very differently at school than other ones. Some students were getting volunteer jobs, but I wasn't. And 
that really affected me. And I was, I've been bullied by teenagers and I've been, and oh, getting called names a lot. And, oh, and it's, oh, I'm getting really upset about it. And, and I've been discriminated by bus drivers and taxi drivers. So what did the taxi drivers say? And some of the taxi drivers just didn't talk to me much and some of them were charging too much and some of them were asking for m more uh, extra money. And one day uh, a taxi driver asked me, we'd nearly charged me and me and Chris a hundred dollars. And tell us about um, the experience you had on the bus being bullied. Um, and bus drivers have told me not to sing on the buses, but they've let other people do it. And they've told me to turn my turn the songs off. And they've never told other passengers to do that. How about other passengers? They were actually picking on you too, weren't they, and miming you? Yeah. And mocking your seat. Yeah, and there was, and there was other passengers that were um, bu bullying me on buses, and they were copying me uh, my singing, but mucking it up because they were adding bad words into it. Mm, that sounds really awful. Uh, well, oh yes. Um, and when I um, when I was put in care, uh, um, then one day I started feeling like uh, my family was not my family. I felt like my mum was not my mum, my dad was not my dad, and felt like my sisters were not my sisters. And I felt like that for years. I still feel like it sometimes, but even though I'm out of care now and back with my family, I still feel like it sometimes. And um, how did it feel when, uh, well, when you got like put into care and put away from your parents? I felt really upset. I didn't like it. I felt like I was abandoned. And did they allow you to keep contact with the, your mum and sisters? No, no, I didn't get to do that. When I was first put in care, um, the, the Guardian would not let me and mum and my sisters talk to each other or write letters to each other. We were not allowed to do anything and we were not allowed to see each other. And then I... And Sonia, you had experience at human services, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Um, at an organisation where I was doing programs, um, I got I experienced domestic violence there because I was picked up off a chair by three workers, and they dropped me on the floor and then laughed <laughs> like that, very loud, and 
I was only playing. I said I was just pretending to be a hen and they kept telling me to be quiet while I was sitting on the chair. But I said, I'm just pretending to be a hen. And then that's when they ended up picking me up off the chair and dropping me off on the floor. And, and I could have got, and I could have badly been injured. That's terrible. You could have even got your back broken or something. Yeah, and then I had to call the police that night, and but they didn't get arrested or anything. Anything else you'd like to add of any other experience you've had in the past or, spirit or what's happened recently? And last year I was n- nearly attacked by a worker for another organisation and when I was doing program at a social group and then not and I was nearly attacked by a, that worker and he nearly punched me in the face. Mm. And Sona, how do you feel now that you're out of care and you're with your family again? How do you feel now? I feel really happy I'm out of care now. Well, that's good that you feel happy. And and I've been having bad experience with state trustees because they are not listening. They think they're the boss of my money and me when they're not. Well, that's very important to actually stand up for yourself and that's self-advocacy that you're doing for yourself, isn't it? Yes. Okay, anything else to add before we go to Heather? Um, no. Okay, over to Heather with her experiences. I faced bullying and discrimination for most of my life in primary school, high school, and even when I was at TAFE. I was also being treated differently from the other students. Mm. And... I was even abused by my grade six teacher. That's terrible. Yeah, and I was also teased about the music I was listening to. I also had my personal belongings taken from me when I was in high school and I was getting blamed for other students boarding in me mm. and for most of my life I've had things disappearing from my own bedroom and they would never turn up and with being abused by my teacher I was too scared to tell my parents or even my grandmother because I was scared that they would not believe me or I would get into more trouble. Mm. That sounds like you had a bit of a bad experience there. Yeah, and it just feels like it's one bad thing after another. Did you tell anyone about those things that have been taken? Um. Back then, I didn't, 
But uh, I do speak up now about the things disappearing from my bedroom, but I'm not being taken seriously about it. Oh, that's awful, Heather. Yeah. Because I was bullied and being discriminated against, it has caused me more problems in my life. And I'll let you know about that later on in the show. Okay, James, what has been, have you had, we've been bullied? Thank you. And I have been teased at school and bullied at school and picked on at school and also teased in the community. That's terrible. That's terrible. I also have been pushed off public transport, um, whacked in the face with the fishing rods, and also people pushing me off the tr- off transport. That's awful, James. That is awful. Did you do anything about it? I went to my local police station to report it, actually. Well, that's good. That, that's a good idea. And what did the police say? Uh, I, can't, I can't remember, actually. Well, that's okay. Anything else that you add? Heather's got a question. Heather. James, I, I actually get pushed around on public transport when I get it off the train or buses. Because I, they say I'm too slow. Yeah, that's happened to me too, actually. It's not good. People need to have more patience for people with a disability. Mm. They do. And, and they don't leave the, the part vacant where the wheelchairs go, actually. Hmm. And if you've just tuned in, we've been listening to advocates Chris, Heather, Shona and James speaking about their experiences living with disability in Australia and some very sad stories of discrimination there, but uh, also inspiring and empowering to hear their voices and the actions that they're taking to uh, alert authorities or speak out about these issues we're going to go to a song now um, and then we'll go, be back to hear more from the Raising the Voices Team's Disability Day broadcast. So uh, don't go away. There'll be more from Chris, Heather, Shona and James. After this song, we're going to listen to The Storm by Bipolar Bears.
And that was The Storm by Bipolar Bears. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 855am. And I'm Claudia, and we'll be back in a moment. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Turn it up, feeling that beacon under me, keeping on it all night. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. You're listening to the Wednesday Breakfast Show on 3CR Radical Radio. And if you've just tuned in, this morning we've been hearing from advocates Chris, Heather, Shona and James from the Raising the Roof team. They've been speaking about their experiences living with disability in Australia and particularly their experiences of being bullied and discriminated against. We're now going to return to their conversation where they continue telling us about their experiences and speak about what can be done to help people with disabilities. And just to mention, the content in this segment includes discussion on sensitive issues such as trauma and mental health. If this may be triggering for you, you may wish to tune out for the next 10 minutes. How does bullying... As you imagine, affected you. I'll start with Shona. Well, because I was put in care when I was ne- nearly nineteen, I have I have always felt like my family is not my family. I felt like I'm not part of the family sometimes, and but I just know they are. It, it just feels strange. And sometimes I feel extremely different than my sisters. I feel like they're more luckier than me. They don't have a disability. And and I feel unlucky that I have a disability because of how much people with disabilities get discriminated, that they get discriminated more than people without a disability. And does that make you sad? Yes, it does make me sad sometimes. Actually, all the time it makes me sad when I feel like that. Have you talked to anyone about it? 
yes, I've talked to my mum about it. And she says, she says there's nothing wrong, but um, I feel like things are wrong with me. Have you talked to anyone else about it, like out of your family, like workers? Yes, but they haven't worried much. But I've even told my sisters and they said, nothing wrong. You are lucky that your brain had developed because when I was, when I was little and had the person ended up with brain damage when I was six and they discovered that I had a disability about the brain damage. The doctor told mum my brain would not work as well as everyone else's and then mum thought my brain would not develop but it did but I still feel unlucky sometimes that I have a disability because I was not born with a disability and feel like my sisters are more lucky that they don't have one. Okay, over to Heather. People with intellectual disability are always treated differently and I had that for most of my life. And I feel very unlucky about having an intellectual disability. And I feel that it's one bad thing after another happening to me because of my intellectual disability and having the past experiences of bullying and getting discriminated against almost every day. It's been very hard for me to socialise because of my past experiences with bullying. When I was younger, I used to stay in my room all day and not go out to socialise with my family. It was very hard. It's still hard for me to trust people because of what I've been through. And I'm always on the edge when I'm out in the community. And I get a lot of worry when I'm out in the community because I don't know what's going to happen next. Mm. Yeah. And I think... I think it's had an effect on my mental health as well. Have you talked to anyone about your mental health, how it affected you? I am seeing a counsellor at the moment. Uh-huh. So catching up with her each fortnight helps quite a lot. Well, that's good. Yeah. Okay, anything else? No. Okay. James, what effect have you had on you? Um, it, it has affected me a lot in in my mental health, actually. What have you done to yourself to look after yourself and and discrimination and being bullied, Heather? Since I was twelve years old, I've been writing stories, and I keep my stories on my computer and I actually write about my least experience of being bullied and 
discriminated against and it really takes the weight of my shoulders and it helps me to really helps me to speak up okay um so now well things i do is just i always tell people what's happened i tell when i get if i get bullied on public transport i tell my mum and my sisters and they help me feel a bit better and I just always tell um, two of my taxi driver friends. I always tell my two taxi driver friends what I what has happened in the taxis and they they just feel really worried about me and they don't like it. They get a bit cross with other taxi drivers that have bullied me. Okay. Anything else like to that? Um, well, I I also tell a lot of other friends what has happened. And they they just feel really sorry for me. That's all. Mm. Okay, James. Yes. What have you done to look after yourself with bullying? I've been doing a lot of things and I know some people out in the community have been picked on and bullied. Mm. Anything else I should add? Yeah, I, 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 I believe that some people in the community have been picked on and bullied and teased and I think we may need new people talking on raising our voices. I agree. And I reckon everybody else agree with that too. People need uh, to do their own counselling and seek some counselling, I think. Okay. Well, thanks, James, for that. What needs to change? People need to stand up for their rights and people need to stand up for their disability. That that's what needs to be changed and people need to speak up in the community and speak loud and clear heather if people out there do not know about disability i would urge them to get disability awareness and just think about if you were a person with a disability you would want people to respect you mm. People out there need to get more disability awareness and people need to hear it directly from people with a disability how to respect people with a disability. I think um, I agree with Heather about things being like everyone needs to have some type of learning what, what it's like to have a disability because most people don't understand what it's like and they should, like, put, try and put themselves into their shoes and make it feel so they know what it feels like. So now what's need to change? I think people that don't have a disability should learn about people with a disability. I think they should go and meet people in self-advocacy groups and 
just get told what it is like to have a disability. And that was Chris, Heather, Shona and James from the Raising Our Voices team sharing their personal experiences as people living with disability. And those stories uh, are are really um, powerful stories and the call there for people who don't live with disability to really put themselves out there uh, and take responsibility to learn and listen from these uh, stories that have been shared is um, is really is really their responsibility. Um, yeah, we all need to have everyone's back in the world. Now, this segment first aired on 3CR's Disability Day broadcast on Saturday. And if listeners would like to hear more from the Raising Our Voices team, Raising Our Voices airs every Wednesday on 3CR from 6 to 6.30pm. And it's been going for 35 years. So if you haven't tuned in yet, this is uh, your chance. So you can tune in tonight, 6pm, to hear more from the team. We're going to take a music break now and when we come back we'll be speaking with Stacey Pigeon from the Royal Life Saving Society.
And that was Boys and Girls by the Fuzzbomb Band. You're back on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Claudia. Thanks for tuning in this morning and hope your morning's going well. Uh, Before we go to our next segment, I just wanted to make an announcement that NIPS, the new international bookstore, is having its end-of-year sale and that starts this Saturday, the 10th of December, at Trades Hall Basement, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. The store opens at 12pm each day, Monday to Saturday, and is open till 7pm on Monday to Thursday nights and 5pm on Saturday. So get along there. There's books for $2, $1.00. Lots of uh, bargains and maybe you can do some Christmas shopping at the same time. We're going to head now to talk about a different subject. Uh, We're going to talk about drowning. Not the most pleasant subject, but an important one as we head into summer. So just a warning that the segment concerns the subject of loss of life. If this might be upsetting for you, you may wish to tune out uh, for the next 15 minutes. Whether you are heading to a pool, beach or river this summer, knowing how to keep yourself safe in the water is essential. The Royal Life Saving Society of Australia has just launched its Summer Drowning Toll, which is a tally of drowning incidents occurring on Australia's waterways over the next three months. It's a sobering reminder of a sad reality. Each year in Australia, there will be people, young and old, who will lose their life by drowning. Stacey Pidgeon is the Manager of Research and Policy at the Royal Life Saving Society Australia, where she specialises in water safety for high-risk populations and locations. Stacey's also a PhD candidate at James Cook University investigating drowning among vulnerable populations. She joins us now to share the key findings of the Royal Life Saving Society's recent report into drowning in Australia in an effort to build awareness as we head into summer. Good morning, Stacey. Have we got Stacey on the line there? Yeah, we might just need you to speak up a little bit, Stacey. Good morning, Claudia. Perfect. (laughs) How are you? Now, the Royal Life Saving Society produces this report each year in order to understand the factors contributing to drowning deaths in Australia. Can you tell us what they found when they looked back at the last 12 months? The 2022 Royal Life Saving National Drowning Report found that 339 people uh, lost their lives to drowning in Australia. This is actually the highest that we've had on record, so it's incredibly sad, it's incredibly tragic and very worrying. And we don't want to see a repeat of that this year. Uh, Summer is the leading time for drowning deaths, and so it's a really great time to be thinking about how we can stay safe around the water as we head into those warmer months and many families and communities will be going potentially away to areas that are not familiar with um, or, you know, enjoying the time uh, while everyone's on holiday. Absolutely. And the the figures from last year were significantly higher than previous years. Um, can you run through what the big factors leading to that jump were so listeners are aware? I think the 
The main, I guess, demographics coming through are males. So unfortunately, males continue to be overrepresented, making up 82% of drowning deaths. Um, We also saw older people, uh, more older people drowning, so people over the age of 65, which is very concerning. We're, We're happy that people are getting out and about and living longer and more active lives. Um, but it is a bit of a concern. People might think that they you know, still have the same skills and fitness that they did in their younger years um, when perhaps uh, their body hasn't quite kept up. Um, and the other thing we've seen as well is, I guess with the result of COVID over the past two years, lots of pools have been shut around the country. So that means that children haven't been able to get swimming lessons, but also adults haven't been able to get either lessons or, or get into the pool to get their regular fitness. We've also seen more people going to more isolated and remote locations to stay away from the crowd. But it, that also means that they're going further away from help. Uh, we know that a lot of people who drowned on beaches actually drowned more than five kilometres away from um, where the lifeguards were and where there was a patrolled beach. And, of course, that is the safest place to swim when you go uh, to the beach. So there are a few things that, that are coming in to play there. So we really want to make sure that this summer uh, people do follow some really simple safety tips. You know, make sure that you do go uh, to a patrol beach and swim between the red and yellow flags. That's where the lifeguards and lifesavers can see you and they can help you. But also thinking about when we go to inland waterways, um, those those areas aren't patrolled, um, but we still have, and we really have to be careful around those areas, especially because there's been lots of flooding and lots of rain. So there is a lot more water around than what there might be or might have been in the past. Yeah, we'll come back to rivers and the floods uh, in a moment. Uh, just wanted to dig a little bit deeper. Um, 82% of drowning incidents occurring among males. Uh, can you tell us why that is? Well, this hasn't really changed. Um, and we think that you know, males tend to overestimate their ability around water. Um, and underestimate the risk of drowning, particularly if there's other people around um, with young males and risk-taking with their peers. Um, But also when alcohol comes in, uh, that's also a big factor towards drowning as well. So we know that about 25% of all drowning deaths involve alcohol. And this is people who aren't just having one or two drinks. They're often drinking a lot so that they're above um, the blood alcohol concentration of Uh, 0.05% and I guess for for the listeners that's the same amount as um, the limit for driving a car so when we look at our drowning deaths we see that people are drinking a lot and then you know that can make, that can sort of impair people's judgement coordination and balance and make those risky behaviours around the water so we do ask people to leave the alcohol till later on wait till you're at home um, you know, alcohol and water just don't mix. And what about pre-existing medical conditions? Um, how does that impact um, the likelihood of something happening when you're in the water? We certainly see a number of people with pre-existing medical conditions. Um, and that is something we've got to be very careful and mindful of as well, particularly in that older age group. That sort of one of the key contributing factors of that older age group that I talked about before. Um, and we know that some medication can make you drowsy. Um, you know, it might not um, be 
great for you to go into the water um, when you're taking that medication and definitely not mixing with alcohol, as I sort of mentioned the dangers of alcohol before. Um, and so when we do think about both medical conditions and medications, um, we do need to be very aware of you know, how that will impact us in the water as well. And that's why we always say is go with someone else. You know, it's a, lot, it's a lot more fun to go with a friend, um, but just in case something does happen, they know, you know, they can go and get help. Um, they can help you. And it also, it's great to go down to your local um, aquatic centre or your local swimming pool. That is a safe place to swim. There are lifeguards there. Um, you know, you, you can kind of mention to them if you do have a medical condition that you're a little bit aware of, but you still want to get in the water, you can let them know so they can keep an eye on you as well. Yeah, that's really handy to to know. And are there any other things that men in particular should be thinking about to reduce their risk in the water? Well, for others, you know, keep your mates safe around water um, and know your limitations. As I said, lots of uh, people, uh, men in particular, tend to overestimate their ability around water um, and underestimate the risk. So it is really important that you know, that we are aware of our limits. Um, you know, we go with a friend, we look out for our mates, we avoid the alcohol. Um, and things like wearing a life jacket, most of the drowning deaths we see that happen when boating and fishing are of males and also people not wearing a life jacket. Um, in the past, people might have thought that life jackets are very bulky, uh, you know, hard to move in and hot, but now you can get, you know, the slim ones, uh, the inflatable ones, that you don't even realise you're wearing them. Um, and that's you know, they can save a life. So it is really important to be prepared and check the weather when we're going out on the water. Um, I know lots of people probably think, oh, I don't need to worry about that, or they rely on their experience around the water. But we know that water conditions and weather conditions change very, very quickly. So particularly males, and um, we do see a lot of, oh, you know, um, I'll be okay. I've, you know, got the experience. I've got the skills. Um, but... These things, we don't expect them to happen. So we want to be prepared, you know, by wearing a life jacket and, and checking all those other things before we head out, out on the water. Yeah, that's um, so important. And I guess, um, you know, we all want to have fun and relax and you can sort of lose sense of time a little bit when you're out in the sun. But, um, yeah, I suppose just having that mental mindfulness as you go out is really helpful um, in order to protect that space so you can have fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we want people to have fun but also be safe as well and to come home at the end of the day. Absolutely. Can we talk a little bit about locations? Um, I noticed the largest number of deaths uh, in the report occurred at rivers. Can you... Tell us whether this was connected with the floodings that uh, were experienced over the last 12 months or are rivers generally particularly high-risk areas? Well, rivers are actually the leading location for drowning uh, in Australia and they have been for a little while. And I don't think people realise that. Uh, we think a lot about going to the beach in the summer. Um, we hear a lot in the media about um, people who get into trouble or get rescued or um, unfortunately do drown at the beach. Um, but we hear less about rivers. Um, so rivers are the leading location for drowning. And, you know, Australia is a, a huge country. We've got lots of people um, who are based regionally and inland, 
and they like to go to their local river or waterhole to cool down because they can't get to the get to the beach often. Um, but as I said earlier, the rivers are you know they don't have lifeguards or lifesavers to keep us safe around the water. Um, they're a natural waterway, so um, and they're probably a lot more full of water at the moment, particularly sort of around the Murray River um, in Victoria and South Australia and parts of New South Wales as well. Um, and we do know that the Murray River is a popular place for people to go. So we need to make sure that we are safe, um, you know, by what, having a look at the signs, seeing if there's any uh, safety signage around, um, looking at how fast the water is going. Um, and if you're not too sure, throw a stick or something in the water so you can see um, how fast the water is flowing. We also don't know the depth of rivers. So the depth can change very quickly. It can be shallow and then it can have a sudden drop-off. And we can't really see what's underneath. Often the water is very murky or brown. Um, and so you don't know if there's rocks or trees or anything like that. Unfortunately, we've seen um, quite a few people who jump into rivers um, and either it's been too shallow or... Um, you know, they've jumped in um, and, you know, they've jumped onto a, a rock or a log or something like that and been swept away downstream. So those types of things we do need to be very, very careful of. And we would say always go in feet first. So walk into uh, the water. Um, don't jump in for the reasons I've outlined. But walking in um, and know your limitations is a big one as well. Do you also have to look out for places to get out of a river? Like getting in would seem to be the easy part, but being a natural environment, um, it's not always easy to find a place to, to take yourself out of the water. And I think that's the difference as well when we think about swimming in a swimming pool. Um, that environment, you know, it's nice and calm. The water is clear. We know the depth. And it's warm. When we go to a natural environment like a river, um, it's very different. And so we might not always be prepared, even if we are you know, a good swimmer or had swimming lessons. So getting out of the water is actually um, really important as well. Um, so it is sort of, again, one of those things that we need to make sure that we know our limitations. So keeping an eye on um, the, the current and how fast the water is moving. Um, because if you do get swept downstream, it is quite hard sometimes to find a, a point where you can get out of the water um, easily. So that is something to keep in mind as well. Um, and we do, you know, we do get the, the odd um, drowning where someone has been swept down water um, or downstream and they don't know how to get out or, you know, it's really, really deep and, you know, people might be going down or running along the river with them, but there's nowhere for them to... Um, you know, throw something or something like that as well. So that is um, really important to think about when we do go into a river and making sure that sort of we go into an area where we can touch the bottom, we know our limitations and we don't go too far from there. Really good advice. And I was looking uh, at the Victorian uh, data and it showed that uh, at the other end of the spectrum that there was actually a proportionately high number of deaths by drowning in bathtubs and spas. Would you like to just share a little bit about um, what could be helpful to think about when we're having a bath or a spa? 
Yeah, of course. So when we um, think about drowning, we often think about it in areas like a beach or even a swimming pool um, and things like that. But we don't often hear about people who drown around the home. Um, and that's a danger, particularly for young children, but also older people as well. So with young children, um, we obviously want to make sure that we actively supervise children at all times around the water. And that goes for all locations. So when we're around the home, uh, if you're bathing the children, make sure that there's, you know, that you don't leave them um, in the bath or in any sort of depth of water, even if it's just for a split second, um, because that's, you know, any depth of water can pose a, um, a risk for young children. That's really important to remember. Um, and then in terms for, for older adults, that's where we're, unfortunately we do see sometimes the medical conditions playing a part. Um, you know, they may have um, had a bath or a shower or even a spa bath, um, and that's where a medical condition might have also occurred. So potentially a heart attack or, or something like that or... We do see um, seizures, um, epilepsy, things like that. So, again, it's one of those things, and I know it's really hard um, in a bathroom and when you're doing things like um, bathing or showering, um, you know, to sort of let people know um, if you can. They obviously don't have to be there with you, um, but it is important, particularly if you've got a medical condition as well, um, making sure that people are aware of your medical condition and, um, and, you know, of your routine and, and things like that. And the biggest thing with these um, deaths, and actually any, any drowning deaths, if you are the first on scene, um, knowing first aid and CPR skills, CPR can, can help save a life. Um, and we know that often, particularly for young children, it is a parent or caregiver who is first on scene. So um, it can make a difference if you're able to administer CPR uh, quickly. We're going to have to wrap up in a moment, but I just wanted to ask you one final question. You mentioned that aquatic centres had been closed a lot during the lockdowns that we had, uh, particularly in Victoria and Melbourne, and swimming lessons may not have you know, been taking place or might have been disrupted. So do families and adults and children need to sort of take a bit of a self-check as to where they're at in terms of their swimming ability and, and sort of whether they've had enough exposure, I suppose, to, to water before they step out this summer? Yeah, your local aquatic centre, even just to refresh your skills. And we've seen, um, you know, uh, with, with children, um, if they haven't been able to attend swimming lessons for the last two years, we would really um, love to see uh, children getting back into swimming lessons, particularly between that age of 7 and 10, where we know... You know, that is quite a, a critical age for developing swimming and water safety skills. Um, and if they haven't been in lessons for the last two years, it's a really great time to get into lessons before the weather warms up and before that um, families go away on holiday. There are also vacation care programs or holiday programs available as well. Um, so I would suggest that, you know, you get down to your local pool or um, check with Life Saving Victoria or your school before it breaks up to see what lessons um, are available for you to get your kids into and particularly that older age group as well because it is really important that we make sure we have those vital swimming and water safety skills particularly if we are going into environments like the beach or the river or the lake or something like that and for adults it's actually equally important um, you know, uh, to jump, jump into the pool 
um, you know, refresh your skills, get familiar um, with, you know, swimming and water safety again uh, before you also go out, out and about. We know a lot more people will probably be travelling again uh, after having a couple of years of not being able to go away um, to their favourite location or, or get to the water. So it's a great idea to get down to your local aquatic centre. It doesn't matter how old you are and to refresh your skills. Well, thank you very much for joining us this morning. That was Stacey Pidgeon, Manager of Policy and Research at the Royal Life Saving Society of Australia. And you can uh, find out more about what's available for water safety at their website. We'll be putting that on the show notes. And Stacey will be back to speak with us next week. Um, we'll be digging a bit further into her research on drowning prevention amongst migrant communities. We're going to be having a special showcasing the stories of university research students. So please join us then. I'll have Eidwin in the studio with me. And thank you to our guests this morning and to listeners. Thanks for sharing breakfast with us again. We love having you uh, on our journey as we uh, go into Wednesday. Now it's time for Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.